Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, December 13th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to answer some questions in the mailbag. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Y. Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. So, uh, you know, news has kind of slowed down today. There's, or not slowed down, but there's less interesting news to talk about. Um, so I thought we'd do a mailbag episode and get to like this backlog of, of mail that we have. Uh, but before that, I want to plug an article that I wrote, uh, for today's, uh, for publication on today's, uh, site. And that is, um, you know, I, I'm a regular visitor to Disneyland. I am on this insane low-carb diet called the ketogenic diet. And it, it is actually a huge, like, craze going on right now. This is, like, a, the, one of the fastest-growing diets out there. Um, going to Disneyland or going anywhere <laughs> that there's really, uh, you know, food that uh, – very sweet food and, you know – you know, there's a lot of temptation at Disneyland. It's hard. Um, and being on the keto diet, you just got to uh, plan a little bit better. And, and going to Disneyland, I, I had been searching online being like, you know, what are the keto options at Disneyland? And there's a lot of like keto message boards and Reddit, you know, posts on the subject. But there's not really a good resource. So I uh, after talking with Jacob. I decided to write one, so I spent two days writing this uh, keto guide to Disneyland, uh, which is a whopping uh, 4,000 words, and uh, you can check that out on SlashFilm.com. I will link it in the show notes. I'm, I'm not sure if there is even any listeners out there that are you know low-carb dieters, uh, but maybe just people want to avoid sugar. Uh, at the theme park, uh, this might be a good guide for you. Um, I spent a lot of time on it, so go check it out. And uh, I, I hope, I hope someone is able to, you know, when they when the next person Google searches uh, to find out what the keto options at Disneyland, I hope that this comes up in the results. Um, but okay, let's get to the mailbag. Uh, we have a bunch of feedback that I've been, you know, uh, <laughs> put pushing off and pushing off. 
So let's go through those really quickly. Uh, Mike from Yonkers writes in about the Mandalorian cast cast uh, release that happened yesterday. He basically writes in that he notes that uh, this cast is a lot older than the previous, th- uh, you know, three or four movies. Um, that there's no one on the principal cast younger than 35. He did some math, and the average of the cast is 54 years old much higher than that of any Star Wars uh, Disney film. The Force Awakens and Solo are the youngest at 38, The Last Jedi in Episode 9 at 41, and Rogue One at 44. So he wonders what we think about this. Like, Do you think it's just that the the fans and filmmakers of Star Wars are getting older or in appealing to more of a older demographic or... Jacob, do you do you, is there any insight to be gleamed from this uh, you know tidbit? Yeah, I think so. I think it has to do a lot with where we are in the Star Wars universe and Mandalorian. We're not in the center of the galaxy. You're not dealing with the young rebels. We're not dealing with um, these more adventurous types. You know, farm boys who dream of going off and becoming Jedi. We're dealing with people who are surviving and living hard out in the very edge of the galaxy on the outer rim. And people who are barely scraping by. So we're dealing with people who are, if they didn't die young, they're going to you know, live to be hard, grizzled old men. <laughs> That's how you can describe a lot of these actors. Even Pedro Pascal, who's the youngest of them, uh, can easily look like a guy who's lived a hard life. You've seen him in other things. So I think it very much indicates that we're looking at a, a world, a, a corner of the Star Wars world, where everybody has lived longer, harder, and tougher than anybody did in the original uh, uh, trilogy. I feel like with the Star Wars saga films, at least kids can look at like Daisy Ridley, and even though she's in her what twenties, I'm assuming mid twenties, late twenties. That sounds uh, right. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, they, I think she's the same age as me, like twenty six or something. Twenty six. Okay. Um, that they th- that she is a representation of them as little kids on the big screen. There, and it seems like there's really not going to be that in the Mandalorian. So. As the youngest person here, HT, do you, do you think that might hinder this from catching, you know, from attracting younger viewers? No, because I think that younger viewers already have a plethora of titles, TV shows, and movies to uh, cater to them, and I'm I think I'm excited for one to um, to see an older cast like this. I didn't realize how much older they were, like on average, and I I like that idea of having a more adults, but not like you know too edgy and dark type of series although i don't really know how it'll turn out but i like something that deals a different with a different aspect of this universe that we haven't really seen before yeah i think like george lucas has always said that the original star wars was for kids and like for better or worse i feel like the animation stuff you know clone wars and star wars rebels is uh, often associated with children's content. So maybe Disney and Lucasfilm are trying to like um, expand the definition of what Star Wars stories can be with this. Yeah. Um, yesterday on the podcast, we talked about this new feature that Netflix is playing around with, this instant replay feature. And uh, we were all kind of uh, baffled of why this is a thing. Uh, Saul 
one of our listeners writes in saying he has had firsthand experience with this feature. His daughter has been watching Moana and Coco about 10 times a day. And there are times when she wants to rewind and listen to the song all over again. Uh, about a few days ago, I noticed this little box pop up that says replay song and I have since shown my daughter that if she wants to listen to the song all over again, all she has to do is press the enter button once and it pops up. Needless to say, it's a lifesaver. I haven't, uh, seen this feature pop up on any other movie or TV show. I don't know if it's just for kids movie musicals. I am for one. Okay. That it's just that. So Jacob, you weren't on yesterday's discussion of this and we, we really didn't have this insight. We, we didn't know what this was for. Now I, I get this. This is probably for mostly for kids programming. Uh, like, is this something that would bother you for it to pop up on your shows? It would bother me, but if it's something that's mainly intended for children and it can be easily turned off, then uh, yeah, that's really fine. I don't have any kids myself, but I have several uh, nieces and nephews, and they watch Coco on Netflix all day, every day. And my, my mother, their grandmother, uh, who watches them most days, um, I, I, th- I can see her being very satisfied with this too. If this is the purpose of this, then yeah, it's actually a really smart idea. I just don't want to be watching you know, a more serious movie is like, um, as I have a box pop up and say, do you want to watch a dramatic moment all over again? Cause that would be obnoxious. But in this <laughs> context, I totally get it. I feel like they should give the option to turn this feature off. Like maybe have it on by default on a kid's account, but maybe have it off by default on an adult Netflix account and have the option to turn it on. If you want, I feel like as long as they have the option, I feel like it wouldn't annoy me. Ben HD. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I'm mostly concerned with a pop up appearing during my first watch of a movie. If Netflix waits until the movie has been viewed in its entirety before implementing that, then I'm more okay with it than if it just immediately appears on first watch. But uh, but yeah, I like your idea, Peter. I think that's a good way to go. See, I'm just imagining it popping up during the, uh, the night comes for us. Do you want to see that murderer again? Do you want to see that murderer again? Do you want to see that murderer again? <laughs> Or, or at the end of Sixth Sense, where it's like, do, do you want to see the twist again? Do you want to? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I think that's an interesting idea, though, Peter. Like, do you want to watch this movie again immediately because the the, uh, the twist just completely recontextualized the whole thing for you? Uh, when was it that we talked about the Avengers Endgame trailer? Was that earlier this week? I think it was. Uh, this geez, feels yeah. like it's I gone feel on so long ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we did talk about it. We we asked if anybody had any observations to write in. We got a couple observations, but I'll I'll read uh, just the one that I thought was a little interesting. Uh, Brian writes in that uh, the the title Avengers Endgame uh, appears as shattered pieces rewinding and becoming back together like an explosion played in reverse suggesting that reversing time or time travel in some way is definitely a component of the story and actually also showing that you know the avengers are coming back together after you know this horrible ending of infinity war i thought that was a little interesting uh jason from malaysia we have listeners in malaysia guys that's insane um he writes in about that same thing that he he likes the Endgame title. It's fine, but he thinks that this movie should have been called Avengers Assemble instead because they they always say that in the movies. Um, 
it would have made more thematic sense of the Avengers getting back together, especially with that logo. Um, uh, what do you think, Jacob? I mean, it's a totally fine title, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that already the title of the first film in uh, some territories like England? Yes, because England already has um, uh, you know, a movie franchise called The Avengers. They had to title it differently in England so that people would – so that that audience wouldn't get confused. Um, yeah, so it's think, called Avengers yeah. Assembly over, uh, Assemble over there. For that, that reason alone makes it kind of impossible. But yeah, I mean, it, it would have been a really good title, but I do think that um, it, it would it would have made it already tricky to sell a title in the UK even trickier. So I think that, that alone kind of kneecaps that idea, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, Stephen B. writes in, re- in response to our Christmas movie argument. We got a lot of response to that Christmas movie <laughs> argument. Uh, people love how passionate you are about this, uh, Jacob, but they disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, he writes in that uh, most films are not just one genre. 21 Jump Street is a comedy, but is also an action movie. Shaun of the Dead is a comedy, but also a horror movie. In that vein, he says Die Hard is an action film, a heist film, and also a Christmas movie. The whole reason John McClane is in the film, uh, or is in Los Angeles in the first place, is to see his family for Christmas. Uh, They're playing the Christmas music in the limo. They debate cutting power to a portion of the city because it's Christmas. The thieves did not pick that day at random. Christmas is a plot point in the film. It could have been written for John to have come to L.A. to see his family for Holly's birthday or the kids' school recital. But then it loses something for the plot. Could planes, trains, and automobiles work as a Christmas movie instead of for Thanksgiving? Yes. But it would lose something that Thanksgiving gives to that movie. If the genre, including the holiday, has a plot point in the film, then taking it away and and taking away it lessens the film, then he thinks it's reasonable to count it as part of the film's description. For those reasons, he thinks Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Um what, what do you have to say about that, Jacob? I'll, I think all the details he mentions are, are, are texture, like uh, all the Christmas stuff, the Christmas music, uh, the decorations, uh, uh, the the discussion about to shut down power on Christmas Eve. It's, it's all in service of the film's basic look and its setting. But I still feel very strongly that you could have had John McClane fly down on New Year's Eve or fly down for a random office party or fly down because – he has reconciled with his wife just enough to have uh, earned this meeting with her. I, I think if, if you, you change any of that, and the movie still functions perfectly fine. I, I also I disagree that Chris movie is necessarily <clears throat> a genre in the same way that a comedy is, or the same way that a horror is. It, I mean, it, it's very clearly a definition. I'm not sure if I'd call it a genre. Uh, it's all, but at this point, we're just splitting hairs. I mean, I think what CB here says is is totally fine. It, it makes total sense it's just not something that uh, i don't it's not something i agree with and i'm never going to convince him otherwise uh but yeah i but, but when it comes down to die hard specifically i feel very strongly that all the stuff he mentions uh does is not necessary it is cool that is there it adds to the feeling of the movie it increases the sense of that time and place but you take it out and i don't think it's missed I, I do have one movie to bring up to you. I want to see what your feeling is on this. What about Home Alone? Because I feel like I could watch Home Alone outside of the Christmas season and enjoy it. But I feel like that is definitely a Christmas movie. Oh, man, I, I think Home Alone is a Christmas movie. I also 
think it's hard to watch outside of the holiday season. Um, personally, I'm not a big fan of it. Last time I revisited, I, I was kind of I kind of was cringing my way through it. Actually, for the sequel, a lot more. Um, but yeah, I, I remember even when I was younger, uh, much younger, I had it on VHS. I would break it out every late November and watch it a few times throughout December. But I can't imagine like watching it in August or May. I, I just can't. Ben HD, would would either of you watch Home Alone outside of the Christmas season? Am I insane? No, I would watch it because I think it's a great movie. Yeah. Um, but I I don't have like the a strict um, <laughs> sort of standard for Christmas movies like you guys have. This argument is really funny to me because I'm just like, yeah, it's, it's Christmas. I like watching Christmas movies sometimes <laughs> at that season, sometimes outside of that season. So it doesn't matter to me as long as it's a good movie that I enjoy and maybe like brings back some nostalgia of the season. I'm I'm with Jacob on this one. There's no way I could watch it outside of December. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Okay. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Brad talked about being at Top Golf on a water cooler episode, and I was sad that they don't have one in Southern California. Sean B writes in to inform me that they are building a Top Golf in uh, coming close to LA. So there's a link to that in the show notes. Um, previously, I asked for some TV recommendations. I was looking for some shows that were serialized and had. You know, a bunch of seasons that I could binge through. We've already talked about a, a lot of the replies, and I, I don't need any more suggestions, guys. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I will read the last of the suggestions here. Shanice uh, it, it wrote in, uh, she's from Los Angeles. Uh, or no, it's he. <laughs> he from, he's from Los Angeles. Um, wrote in uh, that we should. I should definitely t- check out The Expanse. Uh, I wrote about that in the past to you, too, and uh, it was kind enough to read it out in the pod. Get past the first two episodes you watched before. It's really good. And I, I know you want serialized, binge-worthy, and not some slow burn, but look no further further to the 100. Yes, I know you're thinking, I hate CW shows, too. They're too campy and... Don't get me wrong, the 100 is kind of there as well, but good lord, is is it super binge-worthy, especially the first two seasons. I know you long long for the days of Lost and uh, Love Survivor. This is a mashup of both of those, and it's highly addictive. And the later seasons lose some of the quality, but it's still you can't still can't stop watching it. Uh, have any of the people here watched Expanse or uh, The 100? 100 real good, Peter. I think you'd like it. I haven't caught the most recent seasons, but the first few, uh, back when they were on Netflix, and they may still be there for all I know, are really good. I mean, it essentially is um, why a uh, lost meets Battlestar Galactica in some ways, but it, it's really good why a lost meets Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> and I, I have not watched Expanse. I've read the books, it's several of the books that it's based on, but I've not watched the show, but I can, I can vouch for 100. I think it's worth a shot. What is preventing you from going into the Expanse? I mean, if you've read the books, and I know that's totally up your alley, I feel like with everybody saying good things about it, you should be you know, watching this, right? Oh, yeah, it's entirely me. It's entirely me having too much on my plate, too many shows committed to already, too many movies to watch for work, uh, too many hobbies outside of watching things. I mean, I would love to find time for The Expanse. And I, I, we published articles on the website from people who are big fans of the show who have been trying to get me to watch it for ages now. And one of these days, I'll get around to it, especially since uh, Amazon has revived it for season four. I just, it, it's strictly a matter of time and nothing else. 
And lastly, Michael from Kansas City writes in, uh, he swears he doesn't work for HBO, but especially in light of the sad news about Ricky Jay's passing, he is compelled to kindly yell at me again to watch Deadwood. He's a minor player in the cast. For fans, it's a treat to see him as a games dealer, nodding to his parents in Mammoth's House of Games, as well as his magic and card handling persona in general. Uh, I have not watched Deadwood. I'm not a big Western person, but Jacob, you are a Deadwood fan, right? Oh, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the best shows ever made. And if Chris was here, he'd agree with me too. Uh, ben or HG, have you guys seen Deadwood? I feel like I've talked about Deadwood all the time. I've never seen it. I need to. I know. <laughs> I watched the first season and then got like, I don't know, maybe four or five episodes into season two and just sort of trailed off and never finished it so i don't know i I remember like months ago you guys were trying to convince me to to finish it up and and jump back on that bandwagon i just have not made the time to do that yet i mean i'll be the first to admit uh, deadwood's a little bit of work uh the, the the amount of characters the dense dialogue the fact that it does not pause for you make, means you have – it's not a show you watch while you play with your phone. It's not a show you have to watch while you fold laundry. It is a show you have to watch and pay full attention to. It is not casual TV. It, it, it asks you to meet it halfway at every single step of the – every single step you are keeping up with it. But keep up with Deadwood, and it is one of the most rewarding shows I've ever seen. And the fact that they're finishing off with, it, with a TV movie after all these years and getting a proper ending is absolutely thrilling. Jacob, I can't do that. I can't put down my phone. I got to be on my phone 24-7. So. Peter, no. No, Peter. Put down the phone. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, I feel like I need to go over with a water gun and squirt you in the face <laughs> or something. Speaking of which, I, I, I was given a no button by my wife for Christmas. So. No. <laughs> no. So I can bring this out whenever Peter says that again. I'm going to button again. No. 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 One feeling... more time. No. Uh... No. No. <laughs> A thousand times, no. Uh, Do we need one more time, Peter? No. I was kidding. I I am not on my phone. <sighs> okay. Um. Let, let's move. <laughs> Jacob, come on. Uh. Okay. Let's move on to our proper mailbag. Albert Jackson from Texas writes in on our December 10th episode. Uh, I said that uh, Slab in Los Angeles is the best brisket I've had besides uh, the brisket in Austin, Texas. So he's curious of the name of the barbecue joint in Austin where you had the best brisket. Um, I... I used to visit Austin a lot back in the past when, you know, I used to go to Fantastic Fest and stuff. Uh, the, The barbecue at... A gas station in Austin, Texas is better than the barbecue at the best place in Los Angeles. And that might sound bad, but that what is that? What is that gas station called? Oh, I think you have uh, Rudy's. Yeah, Rudy's. Yeah. Uh, it, it's fantastic. Like, that's not like a, uh, you know, an insult in any way. Uh, as much as it sounds like an insult. I know you're probably going to say Franklin's, Jacob, but I think you, there's, you can't beat the experience of going out to the Salt Lake which is just like in the middle of nowhere and it's like you get to see the barbecue pit and it's just like, you know, it's an all-you-can-eat uh, experience and you don't have to wait in that gigantic line that's at Franklin's. But, uh, Jacob, tell us, what is the best barbecue in Austin? Since you live there, you, you'd know. Well, I would say if you are a visitor coming to Austin and wanting the full barbecue experience, wanting the touristy thing, wanting to, like, 
really bask in the moment and have the experience of like a full-fledged barbecue adventure, Salt Lake is the way to go. Um, I also like uh, for fast food, uh, Rudy's, the gas station Peter mentioned earlier, they're all over Austin. They're just delicious. You walk in, get your meat, and you leave, and it's great. Also, like Style Switch, another local place. But um, Franklin's is famous for a reason. You need to get there early. You'll wait in line two hours. You, the meat may be sold out, but can you get up there? It is a nightmare to get in line, nightmare to wait. But uh, it is the best brisket I've ever had, and hands down, nothing comes close. It is, it is life changingly good, and it's not as exciting as Salt Lake. It doesn't have the presentation. It's very much in a small shack-like building. It leaves a lot to be desired from the from how it looks, but it just it hides just some of the most amazing meats you'll ever eat. It, it is probably the best barbecue I've ever had. If you've seen John Favreau's movie Chef. Uh, Franklin's actually plays a part in that movie. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, I got a yeah. big round of applause when I saw that in Austin. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, Ryan in San Diego writes in that he loves the podcast. Uh, he says, maybe you guys should uh, will be able to help me with this. I have a hard time keeping track of when new movies release. And it seems like all the sites that track new releases always post a score of some sort. I consider critic and fan rankings to be spoilers by the way i want to break in here and say that's stupid but okay uh i like to go into movies with a blank slate i need help finding an app or a website that will show a calendar of upcoming movie releases that just has the release date in the movie poster maybe the option to watch a preview for the movie i have never heard of without any rankings or ratings if i want to see a movie and it has a really low score, I might skip it for another movie. So I would rather just not know what others think. By the way, I think that's the perfect reason to see a rating, right? Like, if you you are super excited to see something and you see that, like, it is horribly liked, that rating is saving you a lot of time and money. But uh, but if you're – and I, I don't think that Ryan is stupid. I feel like this is a – I mean, I, I've, look, I'm not going to implement this into my daily life, but I certainly don't begrudge anybody who does it because they're basically chasing that thing that we get so rarely, which is like festival screenings when you get to see a movie that there is no – uh, critical consensus on nobody is weighed in on this. You, you're you're getting an experience that's completely untainted, and you get to walk in and make up yeah, your own mind. Yeah, but that's not going to without... change if the movie's good or bad. And it's all like, yeah, sure, it's going to change your expectations. But I think it altering your expectations can only help your experience because if you know that this movie that you might have been super excited about was probably not getting good fan or critic reviews then maybe you'll you know adjust your expectations going in and maybe even enjoy it more i don't know i feel like if you're interested in something like you do you like go see the movie even if even if you think that uh you know even if it's getting bad reviews elsewhere like if it if it interests you and you are able to keep you know going completely fresh that way then the only reason you're gonna seek that movie out is because you're interested in seeing it, right? I don't know. Well, I, I, mean, well, I don't it, think you should adjust. If, if there's a movie you really want to see and you hear that people don't like it, you shouldn't not see it just because you saw like a rating on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. That I agree. But I don't feel like that rating can ruin your experience of that movie. No, <laughs> Jacob, am, am, I, am I wrong here? I'm going to sit on the fence in this one because I feel like both of you have good arguments and I actually agree with both of you. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, okay, but let, let, let's actually give him some useful information because he probably is annoyed at our argument here <laughs> over his opinion. But uh, I personally use uh, the release calendar on Box Office Mojo. I feel like that's the most up-to-date it tells you when something's hitting limited release in LA and New York. It, um, if there's any problem with the box office mojo release calendar, it is that it includes too many movies, it includes every theatrical movie coming out. So they're like, if you're going by that and you look at a month of movies, you're seeing, you know, like, what, like 40 movies or something, you know, an insane amount of movies. Maybe that's probably too many. But uh, so it, it does have the bigger releases in bold and uh, it's easier to read that way. But uh, th- that's what I use and that's what I like. Jacob, how are you? Yeah, whenever I plan slash some stories, whenever I send emails to freelancers, whenever I am trying to organize things behind the scenes for the site, I always use Box Office Mojo's uh, calendar. It is, as Peter said, the most up-to-date, the clearest to read. It bolds major releases, so it's easy to find what you're looking for by skimming through it. It's not pretty. Box Office Mojo's never, never been a pretty site, but it still remains an extremely useful resource for many reasons, and this is just one of them. Ben, do you have any any resources for him? No, not really. I mean, I, I was trying to do some Googling uh, right before we started recording and looking in all of these obscure places. And most of the places that I found, he's right. Like they, they all have some sort of indication of a, uh, you know, a rating of some kind. So I think it's it's tough to find something that is accurate and is updated regularly that doesn't have that and you guys may have have hit that nail on head box office mojo may be like the just the way to go if that's your if that's what you're looking for hg any any resources no i just google upcoming movies (laughs) i don't know i don't have any fancy resource so i'm gonna say that yours is probably the best one yeah um i will put a link in the show notes i also use um my buddy's site alex at first showing he has a release calendar, which I don't love, but he also updates a a RSS feed of release uh, dates, which you can add into your iCal. So if you have an iPhone or a MacBook or you know any Apple product, um, you could basically insert this calendar in there, and it's uh, pretty updated, and it puts those release uh, dates on your calendar, uh, which I actually kind of like. Um, but sometimes that sometimes Alex doesn't um update those as as uh often as like box office mojo so some of that information might be inaccurate uh box office mojo is run uh, run by what amazon and imdb so they're like you know up to the minute uh when when some when a release date is announced by like disney like uh like avengers has moved up i go to box office mojo and it's already changed so uh let's get to our next question anthony w writes in that he works in the theater world where they regularly see multiple productions. I, I think he means like Broadway theater, like stage theater world, uh, it, where they see multiple productions and revivals of shows. We will go see the same exact production if there is an interesting actor change, just to see if the interpretation of the role has changed, or a revival with the same exact script but a different updated take. This includes the shows that have been captured on film. Those often spur me to go see different productions to see how people interpret them. Now, of course, I understand they are different. There are different forms of entertainment, 
but it seems like getting a new version of your favorite story should be fairly similar. Is it the Hollywood influence or something I am just not seeing in terms of movie remakes and, uh, you know, movie uh, reboots? Like, like, why do we have such a cynicism towards those projects when he, him in the theater world, um, that is something to bask in? Jacob. Uh, actually, I have, this is a two. I have a two-pronged response. I think they go together here. One is that uh, theater is ephemeral. When when a show is over, it's gone. That cast is gone. That memory is gone. Maybe someone recorded it, but it's not the same. The energy of watching a play on videotape is not the same as watching it in that room. The entire appeal of a theatrical show is that that yes, you're in the moment. And that moment belongs to you. It belongs to people in the room. It belongs to that cast, and that's gone. But with a movie or a TV show. It's there forever. It's on DVD. It's on Blu-ray. It can be rerun, you know, on TBS uh, every other week. And so I feel like when a new show comes along, a new stage show, it is a matter of, oh, yeah, this is a thing that's only going to exist for a blip in time. Let's go take advantage of it. Let's go bask in it. Whereas when, a, when someone makes a movie, it's like, oh, a thing I've already seen, a thing that already exists, a thing that um, we can already go watch right now. And the other half of this is that when someone remakes a theatrical show, it's usually out of passion it's because the margins in theater aren't particularly huge. And when someone says, I love this show so much upon a revival of it, it's because the people involved really love it. They want you to come see it and want you to have that moment. Whereas when a studio remakes a movie, it's because, well, they, they know that you know the title. It's be easier to sell. So that's my two-pronged response. Ben, HT, do you have any opinion on this? I want to hear from HT. What do you think? Well, I actually don't have anything against uh, remakes as a concept. I do think that there is room in movie industry for remakes to be good and to maybe even be better than the originals. And um, But at the same time, I think it's just the history of remakes in Hollywood and how they've often been cash grabs and or um, like the short memory that people have when it comes to movies. They only see the remake and maybe that's a lesser version of the original and uh, they never go and seek out the original film. So for me, I think it's definitely like an industry thing and Hollywood's tendency just to uh, do remakes based off of a um, more surface level interpretation or understanding of why that original film was so popular in the first place. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's more there's more of a tradition in the theater world versus where movies were like the the primary experience across the the history of cinema has been to sort of provide audiences with something new. Um, so maybe that's part of, of the uh, the general cynicism is like audiences for movies are expecting something new, but then it's just rehashes and and rehashes and yeah it's you know the industry at large has has become so risk averse over the past 20 years that um it, it it just i feel like audiences are more in tune with the business decisions you know than than maybe they used to be like that it's so obvious when they're uh, mining a property just because it has a recognizable title um, and, and it's it seems to be pretty obvious for the most part whether people actually are passionate about telling that story or whether it's just like a, a cynical cash grab by a studio. Um, I do want to say that, like, I do think remakes are in the DNA of cinema. Uh, the, the earliest remake, I think, is The Squaw Man, which uh, was made in 1914 and then remade in 1918, four years later. Um, so this is something that Hollywood has been doing for quite some time now. Uh, I think 
I think uh, it is just that usually remakes are not as good as the original. I think that's probably where my cynicism comes in. Uh, maybe not in the intention. Um, uh, I actually, like, I, I'm more optimistic, I think, with things than I feel like the rest of the people on this podcast generally are, especially with remakes. Um, like, I was excited, and, I'm, and that often leads to a lot of disappointment. Like, I was excited for that Total Recall you know, remake because I, I don't feel like Total Recall is, you know, an amazing movie. And I feel like when you remake a movie that's not an amazing movie, like I, I don't want to remake Jurassic Park. I don't want to remake Back to the Future. But remaking Total Recall, that sounds interesting. And even, you know, the, the ideas that who was that? Len Wiseman? Yes. Yeah, Len Wiseman played with for interesting ideas, but the movie was bad. Uh, so Peter, I just I I can't let this go by without correcting you that you're you're dead wrong. The original Total Recall is an amazing movie. So I I just it's I'm a, sorry I couldn't. It, it is a fun movie, but it's not an amazing movie. Oh, it's a, it's an amazing movie. <laughs> there's there's some there's some deep shit going on in that movie. You should rewatch it if you haven't seen it recently. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, I feel like remakes have the potential to be a lot better than they are being. And I'm not sure. Uh, maybe you guys are right. Maybe it is because of the intention and it's uh, because of the approach that people that it's just, you know, not working out as well. I don't know. Um, but uh, HT, you just saw a play in New York City. You saw the the, the two part Harry Potter and the Cursed Child production. Yes. If they were going to redo that with an entirely new cast and director, would you go see it again? Mm, if money weren't an issue. <laughs> um, yeah, that play is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, because it's just such a great immersive experience. And yeah, I think that a lot of theatrical experiences and plays are about recapturing that emotion that you feel uh, rather than just like the story or rather how or just how they interpret it. It's just about how the overall experience is and definitely for Cursed Child, which is so stunning in its effects and its um, and its immersion. For sure. Yes. Anyways, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. We've gone way over our time slot today. Uh, so you can find more of all of our work on SlashFilm.com. You can find a link to that uh, Keto Disneyland story in the show notes. Uh, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question for the mailbag or need life advice from Chris, uh, you can also send us your feedback or comments to peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And please go, please go over to our iTunes page, uh, write us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. No. This is my last word. No! <laughs>